All right, we're continuing our study through the book of Jeremiah. Of course, what a, um, well, I can relate to Jeremiah. I think uh, we are bearing witness to some of the frustration that he must have felt as we have been trying to awaken America to repentance uh, and realize the, the privileges and blessings that we have received as a country, uh, and we have just continually eroded morally, and now literally the very foundations of America are under attack. Well, of course, America is not Israel. We aren't the new Israel. Uh, Israel was, was created by God proposing to those people, and Israel was a chosen nation. We are an exceptional nation because our forefathers were God-fearing and chose to create a civil government that was dependent upon God's blessings. So America has been unique from any other country uh, in history. Uh, But Jeremiah was called by God. He preached for some four decades, and it was a largely fruitless ministry. If you were going to count the number of professions of faith as a Billy Graham crusade would, uh, well, there wouldn't have been a lot with Jeremiah. It was four decades of frustration. Of course, there were three attacks on the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem fell over a period of 19 years. They lost autonomy in 606 B.C. when the city first surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then, oh, good grief, I thought I had my... I always forget to put my mouth... Anyway, you don't need to know. Uh, radiation, dry mouth. I have these little mints that are supposed to, And I always forget to put them in. Anyway, so I'll just suck it up. Uh, anyway... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was uh, disciplining uh, the nation of Israel. And in 606, Jerusalem first surrendered. It was at this time that just a few thousand Jews, some of the uh, uh, royal family and some of the uh, most influential community leaders uh, were taken, oh, thank you, buddy, were taken captive at this point in time, including Daniel as he was taken back to the city of Babylon. Of course, you know the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they served in Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet. About nine years later, after the puppet king Jehoiachin stopped paying tribute to Babylon, Babylon again sent its military down to bring Jerusalem under control. And this time, Jerusalem was wise enough to once again surrender without much of a fight, and the city was not destroyed. There were several thousand more taken captive at this point, and that is when Ezekiel was taken captive. And he was in a city called Tel Aviv, about 50 miles south of Babylon, a refugee city of Jews. Throughout this entire period of time, Jeremiah was ministering inside the walls of the city. And not only was he not well received, he was hated, spent much of the time in prison, which is where he's at in chapter 33. Then finally in 587 was the third siege upon Jerusalem, and this time the city was destroyed. Here we are in our timeline. We're down under the puppet king Zedekiah, and we are literally at the tail end of Jerusalem's existence. The Babylonians were outside the city. They had surrounded the city for 18 months, cut off the city from supplies, The people inside were literally dying from deprivation, no food, no water. And Jeremiah was inside the city. And not only was he inside the city, but he was in prison because the king didn't like his preaching. This is the final message, chapter 31 through 33, of God speaking to Jeremiah while he was shut up 
in the prison inside the city of Jerusalem. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it, to establish it. The Lord, by the way, then the KJV, that's all caps, it's Yahweh, uh, yad Hey vav Hey, the unpronounceable name of God. The Lord is His name. Call unto me, God says, and I will answer thee, and I will show you great and mighty things which you have never experienced heretofore. God is the maker. He is the source of all creation. He is the one who formed it, just as a potter forms a piece of pottery. God not only created all of that exists, God spoke it all out of, out of nothing. However, more specifically in chapter 33, God is speaking of the city of Jerusalem, which will become clear as we get into verses 4, 5, and 6, and here to follow. And they were established. In other words, there was a purpose that Jerusalem was created, and quite frankly, on a larger aspect, that God created everything. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, concerning the houses of the king of Judah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword. So recognize they are building. I showed you a city of a picture last week or two weeks ago of, oh, good grief, I just went blank. I'm sorry? Masada, thank you very much. Where the Romans had built that siege ramp up and finally breached the walls of the city. Well, that's what the Babylonians were doing here. And, of course, I've shown you pictures looking down from uh, the city of David, from Zion, looking, uh, looking down the Kidron Valley. It was a significant drop, you know, uh, over 100 feet. And the Babylonians were building siege walls so they could breach the walls, or, or siege mounts so they could breach the walls. Well, as they were starting to penetrate the walls, the Jews inside were literally breaking down their houses and using those blocks to try to patch the holes in the walls. Oh, no, I've got some mints here. I've got some water. Thank you, buddy. I, I carry these mints around in my, on my keychain. And then, of course, my wife wants my car keys. So she's got my keys, and I need them. What's I'm not getting any sympathy from the women in here, I noticed. All right. You got to know your audience? I'll move right on. Even the king's house was torn down so they could shore up the walls. They come to fight the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men. In other words, it's of no avail. You're all just going to die trying because I'm the one that's brought the Babylonians upon you. I'm the one that's judging you, as we have seen repeatedly as we have gone through the book of Jeremiah. For all those wickedness, I have turned my face from you, Israel. I've turned my face from you, Judah. I've turned my head from you, Jerusalem. Behold, I will bring health and a cure. By the way, when we, you remember, well, it's been years since we've studied Isaiah. But in all these times, God is calling upon the Jews to look to him, repent, turn to him. He is their rescuer. He is their salvation. But instead, the Jews would try to cut deals with the Egyptians or get into an alliance with the Babylonians or make some deal with some other country to shore up their weaknesses rather than repent and turn to God. The whole time, God says, I'm the answer, and I'm right here. I'm just a heart's cry away. But they refuse to repent and turn to him. God says, though, I'm going to keep my promises. Here's the thing. Every promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will, in fact, be literally fulfilled on planet Earth. 
it will come to pass. God says, I will cause, notice, the captivity of Judah, which is just about to fall. I mean, they're literally within weeks of falling. And the captivity of the northern ten states of Israel, the northern, thank you, buddy, the northern kingdom, which fell to Assyria about a hundred and, by this point in time, about 140 years earlier when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom. God says, I'm bringing all 12 tribes back, and I will return them to the land, and I will build them as at the first, even beyond that, as we will see in just a moment. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Now, by the way, who is the Lord speaking about here? Is He talking about the church at this point in time? Not yet. Now, we are included in this, but God right now is speaking to the Jews. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Why? Because they're worth it? Nope. Because God's honor, God's name is on the line. God has made the promise. God's going to keep His promises. Literally, His reputation is on the line. A praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture here as cross-reference. Daniel, a contemporary, when he received his vision of the 70 weeks of Daniel, foretelling that last seven years, which heretofore have not yet come to pass. Upon who is this judgment determined? Upon thy people, Daniel. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews. And upon thy holy city. What city is that? Washington, D.C.? No. Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, singular, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. You notice the same list that God just referenced in Jeremiah. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to bring to a conclusion to fill up, to fulfill all the visions and all the prophecies, and to anoint the most holy one in the most holy place, literally. Ezekiel says, there will come a day. By the way, this is after the prophecy of uh, we have seen in the first. I love Ezekiel because Ezekiel is chronological. And it deals with contemporary Israel or Judah at the time. And by the way, Ezekiel is off in captivity, and the city hadn't been destroyed yet. And you had false prophets both in Jerusalem and in captivity saying, any day now, the Lord is going to lead Jehoiachin back, and he's going to take all the temple treasures, and we're going to live happily ever after. Everything's going to be wonderful. Well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were saying, nope, the city's going to be destroyed. God's going to judge us because of our unrepentant hearts and our disobedience. It's going to happen. Well, there's a period of time where God says, okay, Ezekiel, quit talking about Judah. They're done. As a matter of fact, write down today's date because today is the day that the city of Jerusalem is being laid siege to. And by the way, he wrote down that date. And about two months later, a straggler comes in from Jerusalem and corroborated that that was, in fact, the day that the city was laid siege to. Now, how did he know? Did he get an email? No. It's because God is sovereign and God informed uh, Ezekiel what was going on. 
Well, during that period of time where Ezekiel wasn't talking about Judah, he was talking about the judgment on the nations around Judah. Edom, Moab, Philistia, uh, Ammon, uh, Phoenicia, Egypt. And God said, all these nations, I'm going to, they're going to cease to exist, except for Egypt. I'm going to take Egypt out of the land for 50 years, and I'm going to let them come back, but they will never be a world power again. If you look at it, all of those nations historically from that point, exactly what God said would happen has happened. And God said about Israel, you're going to be out of the land, the land's going to be desolate, and it's going to be that way for a long time. And he gave the vision of the valley of dry bones and said, in the last days, I'm going to bring you back. First, you're going to be like a mighty army standing in the land, but there will be no ruach, no spirit within you. That's where they're at today, in my humble opinion. We see Israel back in the land, and quite frankly, they are a pretty formidable army, but they're still spiritually dead. They don't recognize their Messiah. However, there is coming a period of seven years of Jacob's trouble, but Jacob shall be saved out of it. We just studied that a couple of chapters ago. And at the end of that, at Armageddon, according to Zechariah 14, when it looks like it's all over, the city of Jerusalem has half fallen. Those that are in the city can't escape. Those that are outside the city can't get in. Looks like it's all over. Said the houses are ruined and the women are being ravished, literally conquest. At that point in time, they're going to cry out to Jesus. Only they'll not recognize that it's Jesus. They're going to cry out to their Messiah. And the Messiah is going to stand on the Mount of Olives and is going to rescue them. It says he's going to do it with the sound of his voice. And all the enemy armies are going to be destroyed. You know what I think the Lord's going to say? Drop dead. And they will. And at that point, the Scripture says that they will look closely and they will say, where did you get the scars, the, the nail prints in your hands? Where did you get the, where did you get, what, what's that in your hands? Where did you get? And then they will recognize exactly who He is. There will be that day. That is when all Israel, that remains, according to what Ezekiel says, I think it's chapter 20, about one-tenth of the Jews outside the land of Israel According to, according to Zechariah 13, about one-third of the Jews inside the land of Israel will actually survive. Ezekiel 36, chronologically, God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the, that dead heart of stone that you currently have, and I will give you a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, all for the glory of God. The entire world will bear witness of it at that time. And I will pardon their iniquities, thereby they have sinned, whereby they have transgressed against me, and it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth. God will be glorified because, let me tell you what, everything that you're seeing and going on right now, these yahoos from George Soros to Bill Gates on down, one day even they will bow their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. Only by the time they get to it, it'll be too late. They'll be doing it at the great white throne judgment just before they're cast into the lake of fire. 
Well, according to the book of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet will have already been for a thousand years at that point in time. But the entire world will recognize that there is but one God, and he keeps all of his promises. And every promise that was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and and to Jacob will, in fact, be literally fulfilled during what we call the millennial reign of Christ. Thus saith the Lord, again there shall be heard in this place. Where? Jerusalem. Which shall be desolate without man, without beast. Even in those cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or without inhabitant, without beast. What are they going to hear? The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endureth forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise unto the house of the Lord, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, saith the Lord. By the way, this is corroborate. This, 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 this contradicts God's judgment. God says, although I'm going to judge you, I'm going to drive you out, and there will be no voice of mirth, and there will be no voice of gladness, and there will be no voice of the bridegroom or voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. God is telling Jeremiah literally weeks before the city is destroyed, one day it shall be again. I will keep my promises. I, I've got a little short clip from the last time we were over there. I just wanted to play it. Well, we don't have volume in here. If you can kind of hear, this was a bar mitzvah right outside the western wall. My HDMI cable does not work with the sound. I am sorry about that. But I couldn't help but take a video of this while we were over there. We do have the sound of celebration there again. Not to the extent that it will be, but recognize, as we preached about a few weeks ago, as we were talking about the nation of Israel, you know, when Mark Twain went through the promised land back in the 1860s, he said it was a desolate wasteland. And it was. Historically, it was a malaria-infested swamp in half of the land and desert in the other half of the land. Literally, according to the Ottoman Turkish census in 1882, the land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, there was less than a quarter million people. And most of that was in Jerusalem, in Haifa, and in Jaffa. The rest of it was just nomads. Why? Because it was a desolate wilderness. And now, if you go into the land of Israel, it is amazing the fertility of the land, the amount of produce, the wealth that's there. And again, they are spiritually dead. They don't recognize the Messiah yet. And if someone dies without Jesus today, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, you'll not make it to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. It's through the blood of the Lamb. The only means of redemption. The sacrifices going all the way back to Adam and Eve were nothing but types and pictures of the Lamb of God which would take away the sin of the world. And if done in faith, they were sufficient because of the heart. But if done just out of acts of habit, they were not efficacious. Paul is very clear on that in the book of Hebrews. Thus saith Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, again in this place, Jerusalem, which is desolate and without beast, and all the cities thereof shall be the habitation of shepherds. They'll be leading their flocks again, and they'll be lying down in ease and comfort. 
in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the vale, and in the cities of the, of the Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Again, notice it's all 12 states, all 12 tribes. In those days and that time, I will cause, what? The branch of righteousness to grow up unto King David. And he, that branch with a capital B, shall rule justly and righteously and in the, in the land. And in those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. Remember that point. We're going to make that again here in a minute. This is the name therewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now, we saw this promise made earlier in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David. Again, the lineage of David, a righteous branch. Again, notice that word branch with a capital B. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, the days of this king of righteousness, Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. Notice again, all twelve tribes. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, we see a prophecy about the Messiah in which he is referred to as the branch with a capital B. And as we go through the Old Testament, we find four specific prophecies about the Messiah. By the way, that is why we have four Gospels. The four Gospels were being like in a court of law where you called four different witnesses to get up on the stand and bear testimony of evidence as to the guilt or innocence or who this man is. Well, the first prophecy we just read... In chapter 33, we also reference chapter 23. This Messiah would be the king of the Jews. Of course, we just read those verses, chapter 23 and chapter 33. The book of Matthew answers the Messiah being the king of the Jews. And in the lineage that's given in Matthew, it traces the lineage of Jesus through his father of the law, his stepfather, Joseph, all the way back through David, through Solomon, going back to Abraham and stopping with Abraham. Why did he stop with Abraham? Because Matthew presents the Messiah as the king of the Jews. Abraham was the original Jew. We see in Mark, the Messiah is presented as the suffering servant, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 3. I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Mark, you do not see any genealogy because no one cares what the lineage of a slave is. In Luke, we see Jesus presented or the Messiah presented as a human being. Zechariah says, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. By the way, that phrase right there are the exact words that Pilate said when standing on Antonio Fortress between Barabbas and Jesus, said, Behold the man. That should have triggered something with the Jews, and they should have remembered this in Zechariah 6.12, because there he was, the Messiah, was in fact a human being. And then, of course, John 
present. And by the way, in Luke, we see his lineage traced through Mary, back through another son of David, all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Luke presents his humanity. By the way, in Luke, we see the most detailed description of Jesus' birth. In Luke, we see the only reference to Jesus as a young man before his ministry began in his baptism. Then, of course, in John, we see the answer to Isaiah 4-2, where it says that the branch is, in fact, the Lord. And in John, we see the genealogy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we also saw in chapter 23 that there is going to be a deliverance that blows away the Exodus. Now, the Exodus was pretty impressive. You remember a nation of some 2 million Jews in bondage for nearly 400 years? Then all of a sudden, Moses shows up. We see these plagues poured out upon the Egyptians, the last one being the death angel. We saw the Passover lamb. We saw the exodus. We saw the upholding of the rod. We saw the dividing of the Red Sea. We saw the Jews going out and then the Egyptians being uh, drowned in the midst of the Red Sea. That was pretty impressive, was it not? Well, God says here in Jeremiah 23 that the next time I deliver you, it's going to make you forget all about that one. So that deliverance is far more impressive than this one. Now, we'll come back to that here in just a moment. Now, from the Jewish perspective, let's go through the history here as we are at Jeremiah chapter 20, 33. We've got creation. We've got the flood of Noah. We've got Abraham's call. We've got the Exodus. We've got the 400 years where they operated as a republic under the time that's recorded in the book of Judges. Then we've got the kingdom years under Saul and David and Solomon. Then we have the divided kingdom after Solomon's death, 10 states to the north, two states to the south. Then we've got the north going into captivity in 722, falling to Assyria. Then we've got the south losing its autonomy in 606, being fully destroyed in 587. Then we've got 70 years later, Zerubbabel's return to the land. Now, that wasn't nearly as impressive as the Exodus. Zerubbabel was given permission by the king of Media Persia. Media Persia was sown by Daniel, exactly where the prophecy said that Cyrus would allow the Jews to return to the land. He was so impressed that he said, by all means, go. As a matter of fact, let me give you some guards to go along with you. You need any spending money on the way. I'll give that to you as well. And out of the two million Jews, less than 50,000 returned. So let's compare those two deliverances. We had two million Jews going out against the will of the Pharaoh, crossing the Red Sea with the Egyptian army being destroyed. And we've got, what is that? That's what, well, I don't even know what the percentage is. A fraction of the two million Jews, less than 50,000 of two million choosing to go back. The majority saying it's pretty good life here in Chaldea. I think we'll just stay in Babylon. The majority staying, less than 50,000 returning with the king's permission, with the king's guard, and with the king's money. Which is more impressive? I would say the first one's more impressive. So it would be my opinion that this deliverance isn't nearly as impressive as the first one. So I don't think this fulfills Jeremiah 23. All right. Now we see Nehemiah go back and rebuild the city. And we know that they are looking for their Messiah. They know about the 70th week of Daniel. They know about the time of Jacob's trouble because Jeremiah and Daniel, the prophets, revered prophets, have both shared those truths. 
And they also know that they're going to know the Messiah because he's going to show up bringing salvation, humbly riding on a donkey's colt, coming over the top of the Mount of Olives. But then they also see, five chapters later, both by the same prophet, Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 14, the Messiah showing up at a time of war where Jerusalem is almost destroyed, and he comes back as a sovereign king of kings and lord of lords leading an army. Boy, it's hard to confuse those two. In fact, it was very confusing to the Jews. You've heard me share. There are still many Jews this day that believe there must be two messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah uh, of the pattern of humble Joseph that was sold into slavery into Egypt, and the Messiah ben David, the Messiah of the lineage of King David. No, there's not two Messiahs. There's one Messiah. And Jesus should have made that clear early in his ministry when he was in his hometown of Nazareth. He was in the synagogue, and as a topic of conversation. All of Israel is talking about this man, Jesus. Is he the Messiah or not? They gave him the privilege of being a, a traveling rabbi to be able to share that day in the synagogue. Just by chance, joke, not by chance at all, the, the, the reading that day was from Isaiah 61. Jesus opened the scroll, began to read. He read halfway through the passage and stopped in mid-sentence. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to him and said, Today, this is fulfilled right before your very eyes. Now, where did he stop? Stop right here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim that this is the time to accept the Lord. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to him, said, Today, I'm fulfilling this. He stopped before what I would say is the time of Jacob's trouble. What I would say is the 70th week of Daniel. What I would say is the great tribulation. The day of vengeance of our God, which is followed by the age of the Messiah, what we would call the millennial reign of Christ, <clears throat> to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty in place of their ashes, the oil of joy to replace their mourning, the garment of praise in place of the spirit of happiness. And I'm going to plant them permanently in the land as trees of righteousness. And they shall build the old waste cities that are desolate. They're going to fill them up. They're going to rebuild them. The same cities that once existed, they're going to rebuild them and exist for many, many generations. All right? That should have clarified there's not two messiahs, but one messiah who's coming with two distinct missions. Now, let me give you a reminder as we're going through Jeremiah and what the Jews would be seeing and understanding. The church was hidden in the Old Testament. Jesus says in the passage dealing with the mystery parables of the kingdom that this age was not visible in the Old Testament. Paul, having given the privilege of revealing this great mystery called the Ecclesia, both Jew and Gentile, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul said that this age was hidden in the Old Testament. Now, what the Jews did not see is between the first advent and the second advent is this age in which we find ourselves now. By the way, I would say we are right at the very end if ever there was an accurate description of the modern church, it's the church of Laodicea that is wealthy 
has everything except the Spirit of God. This lukewarm church that the Lord wants to vomit out of his mouth. Now again, this is my opinion of what we see. You see the church age. By the way, in the middle here, the church age began with the ascension of the physical body of Christ from Olivet. And it will end with the ascension of the physical body of Christ in what we call the rapture of the church. We see this church age. We see the seven years of tribulation yet to come, which I believe will start shortly around the time of Gog and Magog, maybe synonymously with the battle of Gog and Magog, which would be a perfect explanation for where all the bodies went. And that will begin this seven years of the the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. It will end in Armageddon when King Jesus comes in power and glory and establishes his literal kingdom. And all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will, in fact, be fulfilled. Now, we went through this a few weeks ago, but I think it's important to do so again. The rest of the chapter will fly through. You have the birth of the first Jew, Abraham, called out of Ur. Follow the Lord, I will give you a land. We have Jacob and his 12 sons. We see them led into captivity in Egypt. We see Moses, the deliverance. We see Joshua leading the 12 tribes into the promised land. We see the 400 years of the Republic of Israel. We see the times of the kings. Then we see Babylonian captivity. The temple is destroyed. The Jews are driven out of the land. And there is no king. We see their first return by Zerubbabel. 49,917 out of some 2 million returned in 536 B.C. We see the revival among the priesthood under Ezra. We see the rebuilding of the walls of the city and the streets of Jerusalem by Nehemiah. We see the end of what we would call the Old Testament with a dot, dot, dot to be continued with the coming forerunner to the Messiah and the appearance of the Messiah. We know historically of the Maccabean Revolt. We know historically the conquest of Rome. And we know that Jesus came fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. We know that there was still, they had rejected their king. And we know that the city was destroyed, as Jesus said would happen, and the temple destroyed, and they were again driven out of the land. And why is this important? Because Isaiah 11 also tells, tells us about the branch, but also says, after I bring you back the second time is when the Messiah is going to come and rule and reign. Well, after almost 2,000 years of non-existence, the Jews were not assimilated into other cultures. It's amazing. I say it all the time. It should be so obvious. There are no more Ammonites. There are no more Edomites. There are no more Philistines. I take that back. Joe Biden and Pam, Pam Harris. Uh, but technically, um, uh, just as Ezekiel said, but after 2,000 years without a place to call home, the Jews retained their identity. Folks, I don't believe that's an accident. Ezekiel 36, 37, we read about the Valley of Dry Bone, the parable of the two sticks. Said the Jews are going to be back in the land physically, but they're going to be spiritually dead. I think that's right where we are right now. And still there is no king. 
I believe the next thing we're going to see is the rapture of this mystery body called the church. We're going to see the seven years of tribulation. We're going to see Armageddon, and we're going to see the king arriving in Zechariah 14 style. And we're going to see him being received at that time. He was rejected the first time. He's coming back next. By the way, notice the first column. In 587, there was no king. Is there a king in Israel today? In fact, Netanyahu is not even prime minister. I, I don't even know the Yahoo who it is. <laughs> uh, anyway, but there's no king. Will there be a king? Who will he be related to? What lineage is he from? The lineage of David. Where is he today? The right hand of the Father. And one of these days, he is going to occupy the throne of his father, David, if Isaiah uh, 9 can be trusted. And if the angel Gabriel, when he showed up to tell Miriam that she was going to have a, a child, even though she was a virgin, and he would sit upon the throne of his father, David, then one day he will, in fact, sit upon the throne of his father, David. By the way, where was David's throne? Jerusalem. I just think that's where it's going to be. We see the rapture of the mystery body. We see the king arrives, Zechariah 14. We see the age of the Messiah, the millennial reign of Christ. All right, that one right there. All right, back to verse 17. For thus saith the Lord, David, the lineage of David, shall never want for a man to sit upon the throne of the house of David. The next king is going to be there forever. By the way, here's what's interesting. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, be short of a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifices continually. By the way, in the KJV, the meat offering is a produce offering. Ezekiel, which again I referenced a moment ago, I enjoy because it's chronological. After what's called the Battle of Gog and Magog in chapter 38 and 39, I believe it reveals the millennial temple because it gives a very detailed, specific description of a temple that has never existed. This is not descriptive of Solomon's temple. It is not descriptive of Herod's temple. Now, either it's a metaphor, which I don't think it is because of the specific details in which it goes into detail, talks about, or this will be the millennial temple that the Messiah actually constructs for the millennial reign of Christ. What's interesting is Ezekiel says that priests will, in fact, be offering in the temple. By the way, when you think of offerings, don't think it as something gross, just killing for the sake of killing. Those offerings were used to feed the priests and basically was a time of celebration. It's time to bring glory unto the Lord. Now, the thing I love about the Jews, it's kind of like Baptists, it always revolves around a meal. You can't have a, a good Baptist church without a potluck supper. Well, those sacrifices, they would take a shoulder or something, give it to the priest. The rest of it would be cooked. Now, there was the burnt offering, which was a whole, uh, a complete, uh, an indication of a complete surrender and sacrifice to the Lord. But the majority of the sacrifices were, in fact, cooked and eaten by the family and friends of the family that accompanied them. Now, there will be people that live through the tribulation into the millennial reign. They'll be eating. They'll live extended lives. We will be in glorified bodies like Jesus had after the resurrection. What is one of the things that Jesus always did whenever you saw him after the resurrection? He always ate. He had to be a Baptist. 
the reason he did that, you know, honestly, I don't, you know, Adam and Eve were perfect and they ate. I don't know if their bodies were so perfect there was no waste or not. I don't know. One of these days we'll find out. But Jesus ate in his glorified body. Now, that was to prove as much as anything that he was, in fact, physically risen from the dead. He wasn't just a spirit standing there. Every time he showed up, he said, here, come over. Here, touch me. Here, look, look. See, see the spirit print on my side? Here, and give me some fish. Give me, give me something to eat. Let me show you. It was to demonstrate that he was physically. It was apologetics. It was to demonstrate that he was physically, literally risen from the dead. Well, there's obviously going to be eating during the millennial reign. There's going to be sacrifices, according to Ezekiel. Not efficacious, but I would say as a memorial, just like as now we enjoy the Lord's Supper, looking back at what Jesus did, I believe these will be for a memorial because it is very specific in Ezekiel, if he can be trusted, that there is a sacrificial system that exists during the millennial reign. And there is a priesthood of the lineage of Levi. Now, we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a king and a priest, that being Jesus. But the priests of the lineage of Levi apparently will be functioning. Now, it says specifically the sons of Zadok. What does that mean to us? It doesn't mean a lot to us other than God specifically keeps His promises. The priests were all descended from the two sons of Aaron either Eleazar or Itamar. If you've ever gone to Israel with us, we've got a good friend over there that helps with our security named Itamar. Eleazar's lineage passed through Zadok. Now, David, when he was about to die, had promised his crown to Solomon. But as he was nearing death, another son, Adonijah, established himself as the king, which was against God's will. Abiathar who was a priest after the house of Eli, or Eli, joined Adonijah, but Zadok was loyal to Solomon. From that, we see that the house of Eli, or Eli is how it's properly pronounced, was set aside and replaced with Zadok. That is why Ezekiel specifically mentions this about Zadok. Doesn't mean much to us as American Christians living in 2021, but to the Jew, that was a very significant fulfillment of God's promises. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah saying, Thus saith the Lord, if you can break my cup, if it stops being day and night, then there's a chance that I'll not keep my promise to David that his heir would sit on the throne forever and that the Levites will be my priests, and that the, ho and the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured. Just as the host of heaven can't be counted, the, sea can't be, the, the sand of the sea can't be counted, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Consider thou not what his people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen, he hath even cast them off, Thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before me. So the word was, God has turned his back on Judah and Israel. God is no longer their God. God has forgotten about them. God's not going to keep his promises to Israel. Not so. Verse 25, thus saith the Lord. Unless it stops being day and night, that's the only situation where I will not keep my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
then I will cast away. At that point in time, if, it stops being, if, it, if the sun ever stops coming up or setting, then at that point I may cast away my seed of Jacob. But it's saying that ain't going to happen. And David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over there. So anyway, saying, unless I'm going to keep my promises is basically what God is saying, is very specifically what God is saying here in emphatically in verses 25 and 26. I will keep my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will bring them back into the promised land and have mercy on them. Next week, we are going to get, no, I take that back. In three weeks, we're going to get in chapter 34. And I'm really excited about the next section. One of the things that we have emphasized in all of our studies, including as we've gone through these books of prophecy, including the book of Jeremiah, is that God isn't impressed by how pretty we act on Sundays. You can come to church in your Sunday best carrying your biggest Bible and looking like the most spiritual man on the planet. God is more concerned with the other six days of the week. Is Jesus the Lord 24-7? The Jews were very good about keeping the specificities of the sacrificial system. But then their hearts were serving idols. They were killing their children in the fires of Mola. They were involved in sexual immorality. They were cheating one another in business. Those are the charges that God laid upon them. That was what he was upset about. By the way, he is not any more impressed with America as we have, what, 70% of our country identifies as being Christian. Yet we just had a mayor in the most conservative state in the country, in the Union, declare Gay Pride Month. God's not impressed with what we say. Talk is cheap. God looks upon the heart. The heart is going to determine our behavior. And that's what matters with the Lord. Next week, we are going to see some of the specifics that were, I'm sorry, in three weeks, we're going to see some of the specifics that were basically the last straw. And by the way, it wasn't about going to church. It was about dishonesty in business. And God had given them one last chance. Now, he knew that they were going to blow it. They gave him one last chance, and they repented superficially. And amazingly, the Babylonian army fled, left. And then they immediately went back into their bad behavior. And that was just the final straw. Guess what? It wasn't but a couple of weeks later, the Babylonians were back. The siege continued, and it was all over. So we are going to find that God is not does not compartmentalize. He expects to be Lord over all of our lives. He should be Lord over our sexual lives. He should be Lord over our family lives. He should be Lord over our business ethics. He should be Lord over our economics. He should be Lord over everything. He's not just the Lord of Sunday mornings. And that's one of the most devastating testimonies against Christ, not just in America, but worldwide. It's not that people see a fault in Christ, but people see abundant hypocrisy among Christians, those that call themselves followers of Christ. 